1992, after hundreds of hours of memorization work, my Bible quiz team lost to our crosstown rivals at Pine Hills Christian Academy. Perhaps due to, to a strategic error and definitely due to his 1 in 97 guess, we lost. In 1993, after thousands of hours of memorization work, my Bible quiz team lost to the Georgia champions uh, from Athens Christian School, a team that we had beaten 13 times earlier that year, and them never getting within 100 points of us before that, and we lost. In 1994, after tens of thousands of hours of memorization work, my Bible quiz team won nationals. <laughs> I didn't have anything to do with it, but we won. It was a euphoric feeling. I felt like Jim Valvano running around looking for someone to hug. However, when we came back home and told our friends, their reaction was non-pulsed. They were like, didn't, didn't you do that last year? What? You don't always win? What? You see, it was hard for them to buy into something that was so time-consuming and so all-encompassing for us. In fact, I'm betting that most of you lost interest mid-1993 discussion. So there's just something I cannot convey about the majesty of that accomplishment. And I think you guys are feeling like Thomas, who was wonderfully played by Ella. Good job, Ella. Um, you, you feel like he felt. You see, when Jesus appeared in the room... He changed the buzz in the room. You had a room full of, let's say, depressed disciples. Maybe that's too harsh. There were 10 of them. Yeah, 10. Judas was dead. Thomas wasn't there. That's 10. Um, I don't know if you counted. I, we may have had 10 up here. Um, and I imagine Peter being like, dude, we're next. They've already asked me, and I denied it, and they still didn't believe me. And then you have John saying, why are they stealing the body? We've got to find where it is. And then Andrew said, um, what, a, what attorney do you think is reading the will? And then Philip responded, I'm not sure if he had anything. And even if he did, the police will be there to arrest everyone who shows up for the reading. Okay. And then you say, have John saying, I don't, still don't understand why they took the body. Are they trying to destroy it so he really can't raise from the dead? And then James said, do you think they're trying to impersonate him? And then bam. Jesus appears. And it changed the buzz in the room. I know sometimes you've got to read between the lines of scriptures. That's not quite what it says, but I think you get the gist. Um, I think the room went from slight depression, slight worry, slight agitation, to tremendous euphoria. Amen. Jesus parachutes in, gives enough proof that he is who he is, and the disciples are now roaming around looking for him to hug. Kind of like I said I was earlier when we won. You talk about sorrow being turned to dancing. They had an enthusiasm, and they're going to try to tell their friend Thomas about how awesome this event was. And Thomas, his reaction, I think, is typical. I think if your friends came up to you and said, hey, 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 this guy's risen from the dead, you'd be like, nah, I don't believe it. And then you'd be like, no, 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 really? And they're like, nah, nah. And then you double down and you're like, no, no, he really did. We saw him. We saw the prince. And he's like, I'm not going to believe unless I can stick my finger in his hands. Unless I can stick my fist to his side, I won't believe. He's doubling down as well. And I think most of us would be like that if our friends are telling us something that we just flat out don't believe. So as a kid, I thought Thomas was a jerk who just didn't believe. As an adult, 
I see Thomas as the realist who doesn't want to fall for the practical joke prank that his friends are attempting to play on him to raise his spirits. And that is where we drop into the text. You see, people demand evidence of God's power. Thomas had evidence. He had seen him heal the sick. He had seen him miraculously meet the needs of those around him. He saw the beginning of miracles in Cana of Galilee, water turned to wine. Those of you who read that. He saw him raised from the dead. And yet, he struggled to believe. And I think it's a normal reaction. It's not the reaction we necessarily should have. And it's not just this. At this point, the, the road to Emmaus story has probably happened. Uh, they had the testimony of Mary Magdalene. Some of the disciples ran to the tomb, saw it empty, and they saw it, uh, the linen clothes line and the napkin folded and placed by itself. Those of you who didn't get that reference, go back and listen on Facebook. Um, it, there was witness testimony out there. So let, read with me again, verses 24 and 25. But Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, I'll take a very brief hiatus to say, Jesus gave all his disciples nicknames, I'm just saying. Okay. But Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Except I see in his hands the print of the nails, and my finger in the print of the nails, and thrust my hand in his side, I will not believe. This, this verb tense, it's, it's something, and again, I don't like to get into grammar, uh, those of you who know me. Uh, but it's like if I ran into somebody on the street, I'm talking with someone, and they said, I'm running now. Would you expect me to look at them and say, Man, you look like you're sitting still, no running going on? What are you talking about? No, what they're talking about is an ongoing lifestyle change. Now, of course, I would never say that I was running, but other people do, in fact, run. I don't know why, but they do. And so this is the, this is the verb tense that's going on. When it says the disciples said unto him, it's not that they said one time, we've seen the Lord. This is an ongoing thing. Part of their lifestyle is now we are talking and convincing this man that Jesus is alive and we've seen him. And yet Thomas didn't believe. Thomas, you might say, chose to be a little grouchy, a little less than excited. Skepticism is prevalent. When we, when we talk to people about the testimony that's available to us, Skepticism is prevalent. To quote Gary Ramers, um, whom you undoubtedly have heard of, he's my professor. Skepticism was prevalent in the room in the person of Thomas in the face of all the witnesses. It's prevalent in our world as well. It might even be prevalent in your own heart. Unbelief can be defiant. It can make you adamant in your position. And that's the example we see. Thomas is like, no, you're not going to trick me. I will not believe unless I have all this proof. And that's, that's where he's coming from. He says, except I shall see in the hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And sometimes we have this. We say, we won't believe unless you show me a sign. We won't believe unless you do this. Now, one of the great things is we worship a God who can provide evidence of his power. We worship a God who provides evidence. And we will see the specific evidence here that he provides. In verse 26, it says, and after eight days. Now, I don't really want to get into this a lot because it's not that important. 
But when they counted days, when they say eight days, they didn't count it the same way we necessarily do. They count from the first to the last. So if it's saying eight days, start on Sunday, you would end on Sunday. So it's probably a weekly meeting. Uh, maybe Jesus set up a weekly Sunday night Bible study, which I'm reminded. We have a weekly Sunday night Bible study, but don't come this week because we won't be here. Um, but th- it says eight days again. Um, the disciples were within and Thomas was with them. And Jesus came, the doors being shut. So you have the exact same situation. Just like our Jesus appeared out of nowhere and all the disciples were excited, you have the same thing happening except Thomas is with them. And he provides that proof by showing up. He provides that proof by showing up. Now, he also says something that's, that's interesting. It's interesting. He said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. And reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. Now, Jesus was not present in the metaphysical sense in, that, uh, in the conversation where Thomas says, I need to put my finger in there. I need to put my hand in there. Jesus wasn't there. But yet, he knew this. I mean, now, when I say he wasn't there, again, I said in the metaphysical sense, what that means is we believe that we have an omnipresent God who's everywhere, but he wasn't, his body was not specifically there involved in that conversation. And so when we know that Jesus is omniscient, it means we can go to him. Now, perhaps you are a student taking a class and you have a teacher, a teacher that refuses to understand you or where you're coming from, a teacher who is not in your estimation in it for your good. And you can go to the God of the universe and you can pray. And in Romans 8, 26 and 27, it talks about when we pray and we don't know exactly what to say, that the spirit intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. Okay? And then it talks about God moving in those situations. I remember watching an episode of Remington Steel, and they talk about a dog chasing a mechanical rabbit. He says this dog was chasing the mechanical rabbit, and then one day, the dog caught the mechanical rabbit. And he got what he asked for, but it sure wasn't what he wanted or needed. Now, we can experience the same thing in reverse. We cannot get what we ask for, and yet it be exactly what we need. When we're praying to God for this situation, and we say, we want that teacher to understand me, or maybe you're just an employee with a boss, or maybe you're a disgruntled citizen of a country that's changing laws that you think are invading your liberties and your right to serve God in your own way. Or maybe you're just a church member disgruntled about what's happening in your church. That would never happen here. Maybe those describe you and still the God of the universe can still give you what you need even if it isn't what you ask for. And so when Thomas asks for this proof to stick the finger in the hand and the hand in the side and Jesus offers it to him, it says, then saith he to Thomas, reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless but believing. You don't see Thomas doing that. 
He was asking for that proof, but it wasn't actually the proof he needed. We then come to verse 28, which I think is the pinnacle of the passage, not just because of the beautiful young lady who quoted it earlier in the service. She did great, right? Um, But because there is only one obvious conclusion when you are presented with evidence. Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. This is the obvious conclusion. When Jesus shows himself to us, not necessarily in the way we ask, but in the way we need, the proof we need, when that happens, there is only one response. It's to say, my Lord and my God. And this is what Thomas does. It's the only logical thing that we can say. It's the only thing that makes sense. It's the only reply that we can have. And then we get to the part where a lot of people see this as a rebuke on Thomas, where it says, Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. A lot of people would say, ah, he's rebuking Thomas. And there may be a little of that in there. But I think what's going on more is he's praising those who have a childlike faith. When Jesus says, you know, brings in the child and says, you need to be more like this. He's talking about childlike faith. Let, let, me, let me break. Let me tell you what I think is going on here. I am one of those who can speak to the benefits of a childlike faith. I was fortunate enough to grow up in a home where I heard the gospel all the time as a child. When people talk about their testimony and they talk about vile sins they've committed, um, I am fortunate while I can easily see my sin and can easily see the righteousness I am lacking. It's not overly burdensome to my life and conscience. As Paul says in Romans 6.2, our sin is hard on us. He actually says, God forbid, may never be. But he's telling us sin is hard. It makes our life harder. And I am not experiencing some of that anguish that some of my Christian brothers and sisters are. My, my good friend, the bishop, whom you guys heard speak here about a month ago, um, he tells me his number one desire as a parent is for his children to grow up so he rears them in a way where they grow up and they never remember a time when they did not believe. Now, to be precise, that's impossible because if we're never condemned, there's no need for grace. Without condemnation, there is no need for grace. So, and we know that. But yet, the overarching philosophy he's espousing, I think is great. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to say here. He is praising the believer who believes before they have many memories. We, some of you are familiar with the book that Josh McDowell writes called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And he goes on and says, here's all the evidence we have of there being a God. Here's all the evidence we have. And if you read this book and you walk away thinking anything other than, wow, our God is amazing, it, it, it would surprise me because he has evidence that demands a verdict. And so I don't think he's, I don't think he's insulting Thomas by saying, hey, you, because you've seen, you've believed. I think what he's doing is he's praising those who have this childlike faith. My wish for everyone here is that you all have the transformative point in your life today, if you have not had it previously, so that you live the rest of your lives without remembering the person you were. Amen. So, 
That, that is where I would like us all to be. And so you say, well, where, where does that take us? Well, join with me in verse 30. And it says, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. And this is where I'm like, John, it's only 20 pages. My English teacher in high school signed me books longer than that. Give me some more. Tell me more. I want, I, you say there's more, give them to me. I would love to hear more. John has a response to that. If you turn over one page to the last verse of the book, chapter 21, verse 25, and he says, there, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. John, John's saying, yeah, yeah, Matt, I know you're coming around in 2021. You're going to say you want more. But the reality is, is that there is no end. There is so much that Jesus did that could not. It reminds me of the old hymn. Rest assured, I won't sing it to you. Maybe I should have told Mr. Neal, got him to sing it for us. But, <laughs> but it, it, it's called the love of God. And the verse goes this way. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stock on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade? Okay. So you have, this, you have all the oceans. They're filled with ink. All the blades of grass, you're tearing them off. They're quills, and you can dip them in the ocean and write on the sky, which is made of parchment. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Some of you may have heard this song before. If not, it's a great song. I love it. Um, what, what it's saying is there would be no end. We cannot express the total love of God. So while we sit here and say, John, give us a little more. John, we want to know more. We know that we have a canon of 66 books. Those of you who are into trivia, 66 is the number. So, uh, we have this canon and it tells us everything we need. All the evidence of God we need is in here. Yes, there are times we'd like more. There are times where we're praying and we'd say, God, we want you to give me a sign. I will hold this cookie and have lightning strike it and keep only the chocolate chips because they're the best part of the cookie anyway. You know, and we, we, try to, we try to get God to prove it. But the reality is, is that he has given us enough in his scriptures to show who he is. He's given us enough in nature. If you read Romans 1, there is enough to show that there is a God and that, and that is enough. So the proof is abundant. But faith is also essential. Now, verse 31, as you heard the whole group say, maybe, uh, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Those of you who were here when I did Sunday nights and we played the games and we did John, um, those who have been in youth, you may know that every time I study the book of John, I come back to the, these two verses. There are many things that could be written, but why are these written? That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. The purpose of everything John writes is so that you would believe that Jesus Christ is God and that through believing you might have life in his name. Salvation is part of that gift. But a lot of times we look at salvation as it's our fire insurance. It's our ticket to heaven. 
And that's part of it, to be sure. And if that were all it was, that would be enough. But John is saying here, that is not all it is. That you might have life through his name. Former pastor of mine, Pastor Arnie, used to always say, you are not saved to go to heaven. You are saved to live a righteous life. Heaven is a byproduct. When you are experiencing this, you are experiencing life as it was intended. Life as it would be if we were not filled with sin in which we all participate. Your faith, just as your unbelief, can continue to grow. Or if you don't feed it, it can atrophy. When John says that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that's important. But that believing you might have life through his name, it's not just talking about eternal life. That is part of it. But it's also talking about our life here. And that our life here would be better. I recently read a 20-year-old article. Yes, I know on Friday I ruined a 20-year-old movie for you. So I decided to start ruining a lot of things that are 20 years old just to get you for not going to Blockbuster back in the day. So I read a 20-year-old article. And uh, so it quoted Paul Harvey. So you know it's old because... And he said that 10 years before that, a guy named Norman Cousins had been on the staff of UCLA School of Medicine. And he was pioneering a new medical discipline called... Forgive me, I'm going to mispronounce this. Psychoneuroimmunology. Okay? Now, you guys are probably saying, I don't know what that is. Well, I'm getting there. The article states, carefully controlled experiments conducted by cousins and his associates demonstrate that you, just by controlling your mindset, can alter your temperature, your blood pressure, your blood chemistry in matters of minutes. It goes on to say, there is now evidence that cancer patients liberated from depression can actually activate the anti-cancer capability of the immune system. The human body is far more robust than people have been led to believe. Now, I read this, and it reminds me of my friend, whom I call Tennessee. Because just like Jesus, I give people nicknames. And um, Tennessee has had cancer twice. Um, He's surviving the second time. Survived the first time, I guess. First time he went through radiation, chemotherapy, had surgery. He was miserable. He has told me that there were times he wanted to die. And when he finally survived, he told me he would not go through that again. He just said he wouldn't. Okay? You can disagree, but we'll get to the point in a second. The second time he got it, he's already told me he's not going through that, and I'm not holding him to that. If he changes his mind, that's fine. Uh, But what he did was he changed his diet a little, but mostly he concentrated on his spiritual life. He talks to me and presumably other people when he's feeling a little down, hoping that we point him to Jesus. Now, I'm not an oncologist. I don't know how much longer he'll live, and I'm not giving medical advice. But I know his tests are going amazingly well, and I know he's already lived five times longer than the doctors told him he would, and he's enjoying life. I know that his faith in God is growing And I know the reason is because he believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so in believing he has life. Now, again, I'm not giving medical advice. Do what your doctors tell you as long as you think it coincides with what God is telling you. What I am telling you, and more importantly, 
is that when you believe that Jesus is the Christ, then you can, like Thomas, say, my Lord and my God, and the concerns of this earth will grow strangely dim, to quote another song. You will lead a life that is not bogged down with the cares of this world. This is the life that John wrote this gospel for us to live. This is the life that we can always have in Christ. This is the life that is promised to us when we believe. It doesn't mean we're always going to be healthy. Going back to again, I'm not the one running every day. But I am the one who has exceeding joy in my life because we serve a risen Savior. A risen Savior who changed the temperature of the room when he came in. A risen Savior who immediately didn't hold Thomas and say, oh, you should have believed sooner. But he does promise us life. And that is the hope for today. Pray with me.